Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. Before I start this week, I'd like to own up to a slightly embarrassing mistake that was noticed by quite a few of you, including listeners Elaine and Sari on Facebook. During my description of Anne's execution, I said that she placed her head on the block. No, you idiot! She was executed by sword, which meant that she was kneeling up at the time. That was like a big deal, and I can't believe that I made that error. I think what happened was that I was thinking of Catherine Howard at the time and got the images mixed up in my head. This is what happens when I just assume things and don't fact check. As you'll find out in a second, my mind has been rather elsewhere lately, and that's how mistakes creep in. Sorry, guys, for that rather hideous error. On a less embarrassing note, I'd like to thank once again Claire Ridgway for coming on the show last week. I've received some very kind feedback from you all about it, and there will definitely be more chat episodes in the future. I've been putting feelers out there for another guest to come on at the end of this season on Henry's Wives, and I think you'll be pretty happy with who I have lined up. The main notice that I'd like to give you, though, this week, allows you a little bit past the curtain. I think I've mentioned before that I'm getting married this year. In fact, I'm getting married next Monday on the 17th. Now, don't worry, this doesn't mean I'll be missing any episodes. In fact, I've been working incredibly hard for the last few months to get ahead so that I can miss a few weeks of writing and recording without you noticing a difference. The only thing that you may notice is that this episode, and the one that will follow in a fortnight, is a little shorter than you have grown accustomed to. This is partly because of the whole wedding thing, but also that I have done two 55-minute episodes in the past two weeks, and frankly, I don't want them to be that long all the time. Don't worry though, the quality is still there, and I'm sure you won't feel shortchanged. I've had some really good reviews on iTunes recently, which pleases my fundamentally vain side. It seems that a lot of you listen to me while commuting, glad to hear that I am brightening your Monday morning with my dulcet tones. iTunes reviews are a great way of getting new listeners, so please do head over there and share your opinions of the show if you haven't already done so. Finally, as always, I would like to thank my patrons on Patreon for your continued support, and most particularly Michelle and Miriam, who are my most recent supporters. If you'd like to join this noble band of desperados, then you can find all the details about how to support me at patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. You can begin at just $1 a month, and it all helps keep the podcast going. Keep up with all the latest news of the podcast on my Facebook and Twitter pages, and check out my website as well, of course, at www.queensofenglandpodcast.com. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 45. 
five, James Seymour, The Lady from Wolf Hall. The thing that always gets me with Jane Seymour is how differently history has judged her from Anne Boleyn. At a very basic level, they were both ladies-in-waiting who caught the eye of the king while he was married to their mistress. They both used the power of the word no to entice him, both were backed by powerful court factions, and both, directly or indirectly, led to the disgrace of the sitting queen which saw them win the crown and bring that faction to court. Both gave birth to future English monarchs, and both suffered tragic deaths, though under very different circumstances. And yet, Jane Seymour is almost universally liked, while Anne has suffered the extremes of historical opinion. Well, I've described in fairly exhaustive detail why and how Anne was described in history, so let's see about Jane. Jane Seymour had fairly blue blood. The Seymours claimed to be able to trace their blood right back to a Frankish village in the late 7th century. An ancestor fought alongside William the Conqueror at Hastings under the surname of Samour, which at some point in the later Middle Ages became anglicised to Seymour. They were a fairly prominent family in the county of Wiltshire during the Wars of the Roses, and they seem to have survived remarkably well throughout it, managing to be not too Yorkist or too Lancastrian. It's pretty annoying tracking their family history, because basically every heir is called John, so I won't trouble you with all their various achievements but it's fair to say that although they were of noble blood, and therefore more prominent than Anne Boleyn's ancestors through her father's line, they were nothing compared to the royal pedigree of Catherine of Aragon. The family seat was at Wolf Hall, near Marlborough in Wiltshire. Her father, Sir John Seymour, named because even late medieval parents still had no imagination, was born in 1474, right before the last battles of the Wars of the Roses. Through the reign of Henry VIII, he had attained a reputation as a competent administrator, He had been Sheriff of Wiltshire since 1508, and then of Dorset and Somerset from 1518, as well as the Justice of the Peace, and a big landowner. He may not have had a grand noble title, but he was a huge regional player and an emerging national one. His wife was Margaret Wentworth, and by all accounts she was a famous beauty. Indeed, the Tudor poet Joan Skelton adopted her as his muse. Jane's family may not have had great noble stature at the time, but they did have a royal lineage that rose John Seymour up a few rungs, as they were descendants of Edward III and Henry Hotspur Percy, big figures in pre-Wars of the Roses England, and the noblest of descendants. Together, they would have ten children, six of whom would make it out of childhood. Among them would be some of the biggest names in the mid-Tudor period. I won't trouble you with all their names, but I will introduce you to some of the biggies. In a shock turn of events, the firstborn, a boy, was called... John, but he died young, so you don't need to worry about him. Then there were three further sons. Maybe Henry should have married this lady, two of whom will become very prominent courtiers, Edward and Thomas. Then, probably, because we aren't certain, the first daughter, Jane, named, of course, after her father, and his father, and his father, and his father. You get the picture. She was born in 1509, the same year that her future husband, Henry, came to the throne at the family home of Wolf Hall. Like most girls and young women of the time, especially those of more minor noble birth, like Jane, we know precious little about her early life. She would have been brought up under the close eye of her mother at Wolf Hall, and would have received a very traditional female education, very different from that of Anne Boleyn. She was literate, but not in Latin, which wasn't unusual for women at the time, 
and there would have been lots of needlework and dancing lessons, all fairly normal stuff. For reasons that are not entirely clear, she was quite a late bloomer when it came to the royal court. The first time that we know she was there was in 1529, where, at the age of 20, she entered the service of Queen Catherine. It is likely, although unproven, that she would have been in attendance to some other lady before then, as it was not normal for a lady of Jane's position to be pushed right up the food chain to lady-in-waiting to the Queen. At that point, her only relative at court was her brother Edward, who was close with Thomas Cromwell and was friendly with King Henry. One thing that seems to have been the case with Jane's upbringing with her mother was a heavy focus on Christian morality. She was not a hyper-religious woman by any case, but it does seem that she guided her virginity and her good name very tightly. Today we would think her a massive prude. She did not want any gossip, any talk at all that might tarnish her good name. Maybe this is why she was still in want of her husband by the time she entered the Queen's service. This would have very much helped her in the service of Queen Catherine, as, for the most part, she did not want the ladies around her to have spirited intellectual discussion at this point, or to have any questions surrounding her moral probity. She already had Anne Boleyn, and look where that had got her. She wanted nice girls from good families who had not caused trouble and were good at the more domestic skills. That suited Jane perfectly. Really, she must have been quite dull. So, what did this rather boring young woman look like? Well, the most famous portrait of her, the one that adorns pretty much every single book on her, was painted by, who else, Hans Holbein, and now hangs in the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna. It was painted during her reign as queen, and depicts a very fair-skinned woman with small slanting eyes, a pinched mouth, and quite a resolute face. If this doesn't sound like a list of compliments, then it isn't really. Yusuf Chapuis describes her as, quote, of middle stature and no great beauty, so fair that one would call her rather pale than otherwise. Another classic Chapuis burn there. But I think this image of the rather plain Jane, as she has been monikered, rather misses the point. She may not have been strikingly beautiful, but she had the appearance of the archetypal attractive woman in English eyes. She was the English Rose. The more negative reviews that survive to us tend to be from foreigners, like Chapuis, who perhaps were not quite as dialed into the preferences of the Tudor man. The slender, rather frail-looking, pale-skinned, light-haired woman was the English ideal, and had been for quite some time. She may even have looked like an English version of Catherine of Aragon when she first came over, and she was definitely... And she was definitely considered a beauty in the English style, inheriting it from her descendants from John of Gaunt. In terms of her personality, well, I've already called her a bit dull, but that is not the universal view. Chapuis, always willing to see the worst in Henry's wives, questioned this view of her, thinking it the product of those seeking to boost her reputation while the king pursued her. He wrote that since she was English and had been at the court for some time by the time he was writing, there was no way that she could have remained a virgin all that time. He calls her proud and haughty, classic words to put down women. He goes on to say that, quote, When he has a mind to divorce her, he will find enough of witnesses, suggesting that everyone knew that Jane was really a bit of a floozy. Now, one should never take Chapuis at face value, but it is important to remember that while the evidence does very much suggest that Jane was a careful, chaste, prudent woman during her rise to prominence at court, this could just be a mirage constructed by the Tudor propagandists. Okay, so back to the story. Jane was a member of Catherine's household until 1533, 
when her circumstances radically changed. Henry and Anne had secretly married, and Archbishop Cramner had ruled Henry's marriage to Catherine to be invalid. This led to a great reorganisation of the households, seeing most of Catherine's ladies transferring to Anne, and Jane was one of those ladies. It seems that the Seymours were not part of the Ascendant Boleyn faction, which makes it perhaps surprising that Jane moved so smoothly from Catherine to Anne. The cynical may suggest that Henry's eye had already wandered over to her, and who knows, maybe that's true. Anne was pregnant, after all, meaning this was the normal time for Henry to take a mistress, but it may just have been that she knew Jane from her time as a lady-in-waiting to Catherine and liked her. Jane's first major duty in Anne's household would have been during Anne's laying in, her final preparations to give birth to her first child, and would have been present when baby Elizabeth was born. Over the next year or so, while Anne and Henry loved a good row or two, it seems that love was still strong, and there are reports from ladies and there were reports from Anne's ladies, maybe Jane among them, that Henry was just as head over heels as he had been when he had first fallen for Anne Boleyn. The first hint that we have of Henry's wandering eye comes in August 1534, when Chapuis writes that Henry had, quote, renewed and increased the love that he had previously towards another very beautiful maid of honour. Now, people have been very quick to say that this other woman was Jane, but this seems unlikely to me for a couple of reasons. One is that she is referred by Chapuis as being, quote, very beautiful, when, as we have already seen, he didn't think much of Jane's good looks. The other reason is that when, in two years' time, he does start talking about Henry and Jane, he does not refer to a previous relationship. It seems clear, then, that this dalliance was just one of Henry's normal forays outside of his marriage and didn't mean anything. Not every mistress was a prospective Anne Boleyn. There had been plenty before, and this mysterious woman would not be the last. Anne was not thrilled by it, but there was very little that she could do. Henry and Jane would, of course, have met and conversed in these years. Jane was a close attendant of Anne's, and the Tudor court was a fairly small place. Of course, we will never know for sure what their relationship was like in these years, but so far as we know, nothing happened between Henry and Jane for quite some time. The Seymours seem to be mainly concerned with the advancement of their eldest son, Edward, rather than Jane. He was the hope of the family. He was their best chance to rise up the social ladder. This possibly contributed to the focus during Jane's upbringing on her protecting her moral probity. Don't damage your brother's reputation by carrying on like those other loose women of the court. Okay, so let's move forward to the summer of 1535. Religious terror was sweeping the land, as recalcitrant clerics who refused to swear the oath of supremacy were being executed. Catherine was still steadfastly refusing to budge from her position as the king's true wife, as she was shifted from hellhole to... You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection... Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Slightly smaller hellhole, and Henry and Anne were leading the court on a royal progress. To recap with you what this was. Basically, there was only so long that the court could remain in one place, as very quickly all those people would eat an area out of house and home. Latrines needed to be emptied, ew, hunting areas would need to be given time to replenish, and everything would be in serious need of a good clean. Also, people got bored of the London area where most of the great palaces were. What happened then is that the court would essentially stay at the homes of various noblemen throughout the land. This was a great honour, but a very expensive one, as Henry's court was not known for its frugality. This progress first went towards the River Severn, and in early September rocked up at the Seymour home of Wolfholm in Wiltshire. This was a big boon for the Seymours, and an opportunity for them all to raise the family profile, very expensively. Now, in a shock ton of events, we don't know anything for sure about what happened there. We don't even know for sure if Jane was even there. It was just as likely that she was in London at the time. If she was there, she would have been in the capacity of one of Anne's ladies and not as a hostess. That would have been the job of Mummy and Daddy Seymour. The more romantically inclined writers have sometimes suggested that this was the time when Henry first started roaming his eyes over Jane, perhaps catching her ride a dance or on a hunt. But again, this seems very unlikely. Sorry to ruin things for you all. That said, this stay with the Seymours did push them up a few social rungs, and so maybe it caused Henry to pay a little more attention to the Seymour girl in his wife's entourage. But that is pure speculation. We must now then move into 1536. And since I devoted an hour's worth of your time on this two weeks ago, I won't go through it all again in detail. But of course, the first big event in this momentous year was the death of Catherine of Aragon in early January. What this death did, ironically, is make Anne's position less secure. If Henry had repudiated her while Catherine was still alive, it would have undermined his annulment from her. With Catherine gone, that impediment was swept aside. Jane would have been with Anne a few weeks later when she suffered her second and final miscarriage, and would have comforted the devastated Queen. Everyone knew that this was a serious blow for Henry, but most especially for Anne, as quite apart from the emotional torment of losing a child, this meant that her political position was beginning to slip, as was, once again, Henry's eye. We don't know when Henry began his affair with Jane, but the first mention that we have of it is from Chapuis, who in February wrote gleefully that people were speculating about the reasons for the miscarriage. Throughout his account, he refers to her surname as Simel, but I have changed it to Seymour for your convenience. Quote, Some think it was owing to her own incapacity to bear children, others to a fear that the king would treat her like the late queen, especially considering the treatment shown to a lady of the court named Mistress Seymour, to whom, as many say, he has lately made great presents. The most famous event in Henry's courtship of Jane took place a couple of months later. 
Again, this is from the account of Chapuis, who I think we can probably trust at least a little on this one. Quote, The king, being lately in this town, and the young lady, Mistress Seymour, whom he serves at Greenwich, he sent her a purse full of sovereigns, and with it a letter, that the young lady, after kissing the letter, returned it unopened to the messenger, and, throwing herself on her knees before him, begged the said messenger that he would pray that the king, on her part, to consider that she was a gentlewoman of good and honourable parents, without reproach, and that she had no greater riches in the world than her honour which she would not injure for a thousand deaths, and that if he wished to make her some present in money, she begged it might be when God enabled her to make some honourable match. Sadly, the contents of this letter are unknown to us. Indeed, they were unknown to Jane, but it seems likely that it would have been full of the same kind of longing prose as those that Henry had written to Anne nearly ten years before. So here, Jane is playing what David Starkey calls the Berlin card, taking a page out of her playbook and using it for her own ends. This is where the image of the plain, prudish Jane really comes from, refusing to give up her virginity to the king due to her sense of honour. But of course, this is exactly what Anne had done all those years before, and no one has given her this rather generous benefit of the doubt. Chapuy, too, does not truly believe that this was all done for unselfish means, and goes on to suggest that it was because Jane was being essentially pushed at the king by her family and their allies. Quote, by this the king's love and desire towards the said lady was wonderfully increased, and that he had said she had behaved most virtuously, and to show her that he only loved her honourably, he did not intend henceforth to speak with her except in the presence of some of her kin. For which reason, the king has caused Cromwell to remove from the chamber, to which the king can go by certain galleries without being perceived, and is lodged there with the eldest brother of the said lady with his wife. That would be Edward Seymour, by the way. In order to bring thither the same young lady who has been well taught for the most part by those intimate with the king, who hate the concubine, that she must by no means comply with the king's wishes except by way of marriage, in which she is quite firm. She is also advised to tell the king boldly how his marriage is detested by the people, and none consider it lawful. And on the occasion which she shall bring forward the subject, there ought to be present none but titled persons who will say the same if the king put upon them their oath of fealty. Chapuis, then, is very clear that Jane's treatment of the king at this time was not due to her own sense of honour, but a calculated plan concocted by the enemies of Anne to undermine the queen and replace her with this new one. Jane is being encouraged to use the same soft power that queens were supposed to have, that whispered advice into the ear of the besotted man to guide him to turn against his wife. This whole event is really rather theatrical, and it is possible that either the event was contrived for maximum exposure, to embarrass the Queen totally, or it may be an exaggeration. Who can know? All the while, Jane's elder brother Edward was rising up the political food chain. He had been made Squire of the Body in 1529, and he and Henry had exchanged gifts at New Year's in 1532 and 1533, which was unusual for someone of his rank and a definite sign of favour. This was no doubt because of Edward's closeness with Cromwell, whose rising star was elevating all those around him. So she had her brother, but he was not a huge player at this point. Anne still had a wide base of support. So who else was backing Jane? Well, of course, as I said in the last episode, the key man was Cromwell. He wasn't so much on Jane's side as he was against Anne. Indeed, I'm sure that he would have preferred some advantageous foreign match, but at this point, he couldn't be too choosy. 
Once he had gotten wind that Anne and her allies had turned against him, then he had to act fast to protect his position. The fact that Henry had begun to fall for another woman was, in many ways, neither here nor there. Another faction that backed Jane, again, as I said last time, were religious conservatives, people who backed Princess Mary. Again, this was not really to do with Jane herself. They just saw her as a convenient vehicle to attack Queen Anne. She was, in many ways, a left-field choice to be the apple of the king's eye. Indeed, she was not well known at all outside of England. Yet, as the fateful month of May 1536 began, and it became clear that Anne was destined to die, and that she would be likely quickly replaced by this relative unknown, people scrambled to get to know more about Jane. Chapuis described her as follows to Cardinal Granville. Quote, she is sister to one Edward Seymour, the king's man, of middle stature and no great beauty. She is now over 25 years old, and I will leave it to you to judge whether being English and having long frequented the court, she has an advantage. Basically, the imperial ambassador here is essentially saying she's like average looking, but she was there, and that was good enough for the king. In another letter, written by Sir John Russell to Lord Lyle a little later, she is described rather more favourably. Quote, I assure you she is as gentle a lady as ever I knew, and as fair a queen as any in Christendom. The king has come out into heaven for the gentleness of this, and the cursedness and unhappiness of the other. Essentially, this means that she is great because she is the anti-Anne Boleyn, a theme I will be returning to. So let's, like last time, consult the timeline, because things happened so quickly in the spring of 1536 that it's easy to lose track. Jane caught Henry's eye sometime in February, not long after Catherine's death and Anne's miscarriage. Cromwell had started to move against Anne in sort of March time, amping up his efforts in April. Meanwhile, Jane was deftly fending off gifts from Henry and elegantly flirting. Then, of course, Anne's fall began in the final days of April, with her trial beginning on the 15th of May. From Jane's perspective, she was moved out of Anne's household to one of Henry's favourites, Nicholas Carew, a religious conservative and ardent opponent of Queen Anne, where he and Jane could continue their courtship at this time. For me, this is very different from Henry's courtship with Anne. Henry's love and lust for Anne had been one of the prime, though far from the only, reasons for him wanting out of his marriage with Catherine. She had been the straw that broke the camel's back. By contrast, I don't think that Jane herself really played much of a role in Anne's downfall. To an extent, Chefoui has a point when he says that it had a lot to do with her just being there. Don't get me wrong, I think that Jane was very clever and astute in positioning herself to take advantage of Anne's fall, but she was hardly Henry's first rodeo, and think it is likely that whoever had been the apple of his eye at this time would have been made queen. That all said, Jane, with the help of those around her, had played her cards perfectly. She had used Anne tactics against her, and now she was on the cusp of becoming Henry's third queen in as many years. On the 19th of May, Anne was executed at the Tower. The next morning, Henry proposed to Jane Seymour, and she accepted. On the same day, Edward Seymour was raised to the peerage, given the title Viscount Beauchamp, and given a load of land that had recently been confiscated from monks. If the Seymours were really religious conservatives, and for the record I do not believe that they were, then they clearly had few scruples about taking advantage of the early Reformation for their own gain. This speed, getting engaged a day after executing his previous wife, seems really unseemly to modern eyes, and frankly it was to contemporaries as well. In another letter to the Cardinal, Chapuis wrote that Jane, quote, 
came secretly by river this morning to the king's lodging, and that the promise and betrothals was made at nine o'clock. The king means it to be kept secret until Whitsuntide, but everybody begins already to murmur by suspicion, and several affirm that long before the death of the other there was some arrangement which sounds ill in the ears of the people, who will certainly be displeased at what has been told me, if it be true. That yesterday, the king immediately on receiving news of the decapitation of the whore, entered his barge and went to the said Seymour, whom he has lodged a mile from him, in a house by the river. Even Chapuis here seems to have been having a twinge of sympathy for Anne, even while calling her a whore. As David Lodes puts it in his biography of Jane, quote, It is ironic that Anne's only experience of public sympathy came over the manner of her death. They didn't hang around with getting married either. On the 30th of May, so just three weeks after he had had his last wife executed, and five months after the one before that had been essentially neglected to death, Henry married wife number three, in what is rather delightfully described as the Queen's Closet in the Palace of Whitehall. Now, if you're imagining a tiny room filled with mothy old clothes and maybe a mop, then of course you'd be completely wrong. This was just another name for the Queen's private apartments. The ceremony was presided over by Bishop Gardiner, and it was all done very quietly, much like his wedding with Anne. No doubt this time, because to have a huge wedding would seem unseemly. That said, there was still a great deal of preparations that had to be done very quickly. Like I said in a previous episode, Anne's symbols and initials were everywhere in the royal palaces. This meant that quick work had to be done, and a lot of covering up and fudging was required to replace Anne's emblems with the phoenixes of Jane Seymour. As a present, Henry granted Jane a dowry that would support her as queen, including lands in four counties, as well as a Hans Holbein designed cup where their initials are entwined with a love knot, with Jane's motto, bound to obey and serve. And on this, their happy wedding day, we shall leave these two lovebirds for this week. Next time, we will see how Jane coped with being Henry's rebound from his tempestuous marriage to Anne, and whether she managed to achieve a feat that eluded his previous two wives, provide England with a son and heir. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.